How would your life change if you could see God at work? Now, I don't just mean see God at work in the, the special moments, those coincidences that seem a little bit too coincidental, right? Like uh, the other day, Joe was telling me how his kids opened up their kids' Bible for the first time in quite some time, not having really been reading that particular one uh, for months. And they happened to open it last Sunday after church and the bookmark was in the story of Jacob with the ladder going up and down into heaven, right? You think, ah, oh, well, that's so coincidental. It must be God, right, who does that. I don't just mean in moments like those, but in the everyday, in, in the mundane, in the conversations, in the decisions, in the circumstances of life, to see God operating, not just in the big picture, We see God there, Jesus, salvation, God's kingdom coming about on earth, the display of his glorious grace to the heaven. Of course, God's at work in those. But in the everyday, him sovereignly directing events to accomplish his purposes, to bring about the redemption of his people in our lives. Now, in our chapters today, as we work through Genesis 31 to 33, we really see God at work, specifically, directly, in the lives of his people. And what I want to do in our time is to quickly, fairly quickly, run through the story. We're not going to read it all. We're not going to go into it in depth. I hope you've pre-read it. But just by way of recap, of refresher, run through the story. And then I want to draw out four lessons for us. Now, you remember the context. Remember what happened last week as we read through Genesis 28 to 30, As Jacob flees to his uncle Laban, marries his two daughters, has children with them and with their servants, Laban tries to cheat him for wages and it goes on and on. Such that by the end of chapter 30, we read these words, 3043. The man became very rich. Jacob became very rich. He had many flocks, female and male slaves, camels and donkeys. The context is, under Laban, Jacob has become rich. The problem is that he's become rich at Laban's expense. Laban tried to trick him, and under God, Jacob came out ahead every time, such that as we begin our passage in 31 verse 1, we read the following, Now Jacob heard what Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built his wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw from Laban's face that his attitude toward him was not the same as before. (laughs) I don't quite know what the attitude change was. Previously, Laban had just been trying to trick him. Now, perhaps, he has something a bit more malicious in mind. And so, verse 3, the Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. It's time to go back. Now, that's a very important statement by God. If you remember the promises that God had made to Abraham, that passed from Abraham to Isaac, that passed from Isaac to Jacob, well, there were a number of those promises, weren't there? Now, interestingly, in this case, one of the promises that I think we often forget about has come true. Do you remember the promises God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12? Did you remember what they were? Uh, well, there was uh, the, the ones that we always talk about, right? There's the promise of children, which was rather special to Abraham, that they'd become a mighty nation. There was the promise of a land. I will give you the land of Canaan. And there was a promise of blessing. 
Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, that's kind of how we usually talk about it. If you go back and read Genesis 12, though, there's a very interesting part to the blessing that we don't often talk about. And that is God said to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Laban has been doing his best to defraud God's chosen man, and the outcome has been God's curse falling upon him. No, God says to Jacob, it's time to go back to the land. The promises still stand. We have to return. So Jacob gets his wives, chats it over with them. I mean, it's your dad after all, girls. And they say, no, our old man's given us the flick. Let's get out of here. So verse 17, Jacob got up, put his children and wives on the camels. He took all the livestock and possessions he had acquired in Paddan Aram. And he drove his herds to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. So far, so good. Now, verse 19, a little twist though, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household idols. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean, not telling him that he was fleeing. He fled with all his possessions, crossed the Euphrates and headed for the hill country of Gilead. The journey has begun under false pretenses, but it's time to go. He packs his stuff and he runs for the hills. Now, that's chapter 31, really. I mean... God warns, uh, we're back up here still, okay, runs for the hills. Now Laban, poor bloke, a few days later, verse 22, on the third day Laban was told Jacob had fled. I can imagine the guy, I mean Jacob by this stage owned pretty much all of Laban's livestock. So imagine, I don't know where he was, he comes home and looks out at the fields and it's just gone. Your wealth is lost. I mean, it was probably easy while Jacob was still there to imagine that somehow you might gain it back, that somehow it's still kind of yours, even though it's sort of really Jacob's now, but it's gone. He's gone. He's taken your your children, your grandchildren, your possessions that were his possessions. So verse 23, Laban took his relatives with him, pursued Jacob, took him a week to catch up to him. But on the way, verse 24, God came to Laban in a dream at night. Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Have nothing more to deal with him. Sure, you're going to catch up to him. Do not harm him. Don't bless him. Your business is done. And so Laban, when he gets there, he says to Jacob, look, I could have hurt you, but God warned me, so I won't. But, well, why did you take my gods? (laughs) Jacob says, I didn't do it. They look for them, they don't find them. Rachel tricks her own dad. And so they make a covenant, Laban and Jacob, each to go their own way. So be it. Let's not harm each other. Let's have nothing to do with each other anymore. You go your way, I'll go mine. And Laban is gone. Which brings us to chapter 32. As Jacob comes back towards towards Canaan, there's a little problem in the way. You remember how he left Canaan? He ran. He bolted. He fled before his twin brother who was intent on killing him. His mum, when he left, Rebecca, had said to Jacob, I'll tell you when it's safe to come back. And we haven't heard word from her. What's going to happen? Chapter 32, verse 1, Jacob went on his way and God's angels met him. 
When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp, so he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. He commanded them, go and say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban, I've been delayed until now, 20 years. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favour. That's a strange message, isn't it? Hey Esau, I'm coming back and I'm loaded. I've got the good stuff. When the messenger returned to Jacob, they said, we met your brother Esau, we went to your brother Esau, he's coming to meet you and he has 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps along with all of his flocks. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Understandably, Jacob is afraid. I mean, Esau's coming and 400 men are coming. That doesn't sound like a welcoming party. That's not Esau and his wives and children came by way of having a family reunion. That's the fighting. That's a small nation is bearing down upon us. And Jacob in his fear prays. He prays to the God. Well, the God that he adopted as his own as he left Canaan, the God that he still sees in part as being the God of his father and his grandfather, and he says, oh God, save me. That's his prayer. Save me. You told me to come back. You told me you'd look after me. You made me do it. Now you look after me. And he spent the night there and sent a massive, whopping, great big gift to his brother. Now I have a look down, verse 14, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He sent them all ahead by way of... Now, now I don't know the going rate for milking camels. I'm not completely sure what they're worth, but I suspect this was a substantial gift. I left Esau and I, you could argue cost you everything. Let me make it up for you. Let me send you some presents. Let me soften you up. And then something very strange happens. As Jacob sends his family, they cross the river. They're finally getting into the land where they left. Jacob ends up all alone. I take it in the middle of the night as they've all crossed this creek. And some random man finds him and they wrestle. I can't imagine Jacob's fear at that point. You're already afraid for your life. You're convinced someone's about to kill you. You're alone and a man finds you and you cannot defeat him. Mind you, Jacob doesn't quite defeat the man either and as dawn breaks, they're in a stalemate, a very strange one, and Jacob comes out of the encounter with his name changed and a limp. And then chapter 33 comes the reunion. Jacob and Esau meet. This long-awaited reunion. Actually, no, it wasn't a long-awaited reunion at all, was it? We're expecting battle. We're expecting a fight. We're expecting Esau to want his revenge. Have 20 years mellowed him. 33 verse 1, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming towards him with 400 men. He divided the children among the women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. Right, let them make their way through those I don't care about. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
and they wept. And Esau looked up and saw the women and children. He asked, who are these with you? And Jacob replied, the children God has graciously given your servant. It's not quite the reunion we thought would happen when they left, but it's a good one. They reconcile, eh, sort of. They haggle a bit about the gifts. Esau takes them in the end. He says, let's go back to my place. Jacob says, ah, we'll follow you and then goes somewhere else instead. And that's kind of the end of Esau as well. Right, A few chapters later, as we come to chapter 36, we'll see later, but Esau eventually leaves Canaan. Jacob and Esau become so big, the two of them, that they can't stay in the same land. And however reconciled they might have been here, Esau decides it's time to go. Now, what do we make of these chapters? What sort of a lesson are we supposed to draw out from it? What are we to learn? Now, again, remember, in Genesis is the origin of so many ideas, so much theology and so many stories, the narrative that gets fleshed out through the rest of Scripture. And what I want to do is draw four lessons out of these events, four lessons for us. Here's number one. We've been seeing it the whole way consistently, and that is God will not be stopped. God will not be stopped. He will keep his promises. It's a great sentence, that one, God keeps his promises. It's so simple. My children know it. My children remember it. It's so powerful. God keeps his promises. If you know the promises of God, then you know what it is that God will accomplish. In the life of Jacob, lots of things had gone right. God had promised descendants. Well, we'd gone from one to two to 12, going to be soon, plus a daughter, to from there it goes. That part of the blessing is coming true. God had promised to bless him, to be his God, and they would be his people. And that part's coming true. The guy can afford to send, I don't know, what, a quarter of a million dollars worth of livestock away as a gift to his brother. But the land, the land still did not belong to God's people. They weren't even in the land. As Jacob decides to leave Laban, all sorts of things are arrayed against him. All sorts of problems to seeing God's promises come true. I mean, he seems to be stuck with Laban. For good or for bad, if he runs away, Laban, well, who knows what he's going to do when he catches up. He's got Esau waiting for him. Again, the word from mum never came. For all we know, he's just waiting to kill me. He's been building up his army. And yet through these chapters, we see that God will not be stopped. Laban, it turns out, is a joke. I mean, the, the whole chapter with Laban in chapter 31 is this really strange and and rather humorous juxtaposition of the God of Laban and the God of Jacob. You see what happened to Laban's God? His daughter deceived him and stole it away. I mean, what sort of God can just get nicked and you don't even know what happened to him? Rachel sits on them when Laban comes into into her tent to look for him. She says, I'm very sorry, I can't get up. I'm having my lady time. Right, and Laban goes, oh, well, okay then, and off he leaves. As most blokes in, probably would be, embarrassed and, oh, I need to get out. Compared to the God of Jacob, who appears even to his enemies and says, be warned, do not touch mine. And Laban knows that that is for real. Now, Laban's not going to stop him. Jacob's fear won't stop God as he separates his camp, as he worries that, I guess I've got to create contingency plans in case Esau destroys one or the other. How am I going to run away and keep mine and do what I need? 
Jacob's fear won't stop God. Esau won't stop God. I feel for Esau in bringing his 400 men. It's easy to read into it that he was coming prepped for a fight and Jacob's presence, that the gifts, that is, not his being there, his gifts somehow placated Esau. It's easy to read that into it. I wonder if Esau brought the men in self-defense. For all, for all he knew, Jacob was coming back with his own army to claim his birthright. I wonder if Esau wasn't a bit relieved as he sees Jacob bowing towards him. Oh, we're not fighting. But either way, we're not told whether he had a change of heart or not. But still, Esau will not stop God. Again, such that by chapter 36, Esau has left the land and Jacob is in it. Now, of course, we, we, we see that in the big picture again. God at work, God won't be stopped. It's easy to think about that in, in, light, in, in terms of the big picture things. Jesus, salvation, God's kingdom, the rule of the world, the destruction of God's enemies, the display of his grace to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's easy to see it out there. But do we believe the implications for our own lives? That God will not be stopped. That he will keep his promises in your life. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about the God who is accomplishing his purposes in the church at Philippi. And so he writes in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our God is a God who cannot be stopped, who will keep his promises, who will bring about his purposes in our lives. I think it will make a tremendous difference to us to start seeing God at work. Let me, let me ask you a series of questions. Do you believe in the existence of God? That he's real, that he's there, that he's present, that he's powerful? I take it the answer is yes. Do you believe that God speaks? That he communicates to us not only who he is but what he will do? And not only what he will do but what he will do in us and to us and for us? I take it you do. Do you believe that God makes promises? That it's not just this is my intent and I'm, it's an FYI, I'm going, to, I'm going to let you know what I'm going to do, but that he is promising to us amazing things. Do you believe that God keeps those promises? Because if we answer yes to all of those, then our lives ought to be marked by it, by a desire to know God's promises, right? to, to, be, to, be, to be dwelling in this all the time, to hear God speak and to live in light of that, knowing God will work. The first lesson is that God will not be stopped. He will accomplish his purposes. He will keep his promises. The second lesson is that God will do what is necessary to teach us to trust him. God will do whatever is necessary to teach us to trust him. With Jacob's story, 
Why did God even allow Laban to chase him? I mean, God could have just said to Laban, while they were still back at Paddan Aram, and said, it's time for Jacob to go, settle down, buddy, my man needs to go back to my land. No, he let Laban chase him and let Jacob feel the fear of what's coming. He, he allowed and created circumstances that were, well, hard. Why even allow Esau to come and confront Jacob with 400 men? He could have just struck him dead. He could have made Esau leave Canaan before Jacob. There's all sorts of things God could have done. Why send a man, an angel, to wrestle with Jacob in the middle of the night when he's freaking out? All of these, I take it, designed to turn Jacob to him. That progress that we saw last week from your God to my God, now turning to God in prayer in his hour of need. In Romans chapter 5, Paul communicates something very similar to Christians. You see, what is it that God is doing in your life when the going gets tough, when you face affliction and hardship? Well, Paul says, as we've obtained through Jesus, by faith, this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope, which does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out and through the Holy Spirit was given to us. Do you see that in the circumstances of your life, God will do what is necessary to teach you to cling to him. It means that we can face suffering with great hope because we see meaning in our affliction. It's not random, it's not chaotic, it's not capricious or spiteful. It's God teaching us, training us, producing in us the faith, the trust that on our own we would lack. But I'll tell you what it also means. It also means that we expect affliction in the Christian life. We expect God to do this work in us. As we learn to see God at work, we may well start to see those moments in our lives that God has placed there to teach us to cling to him. God will not be stopped. He will do what is necessary to teach us to trust him. Third lesson. Do wrestle with God. Do wrestle with God. This encounter of Jacob with this angel and their wrestling, such a strange event. So many things about it that are just quirky and weird and and hard to know what to do with. Often when we read a story like this in the Old Testament, you, you ask yourself, well, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Am I supposed to imitate him or not be like him? Right? Is this, a, is this an example for me to learn from? Is this faith or not faith? Is it idolatry or the worship of the true God? What am I? This passage seems to have a lot of both in it. There's good things and there's bad things. There's positive and there's negative. Jacob is blessed by God, but he's struggling against God. What are we supposed to make of it? Well, again, that little seed of theology that is unpacked through the rest of the Scriptures, there are a number of times where God invites us to partner with him, to wrestle with him, particularly in prayer. Think for a moment of Abraham 
as they surveyed with, with, with God's angel, as they surveyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did Abraham do? He contended with God. Well, surely for 50, surely for 20, surely for 10 righteous people, you won't destroy it. Think of Moses at Mount Sinai. When God says, that's it, I'm wiping them all out. Once more they've been idolatrous, once more they've ignored me, the end. And Moses says, please don't. Remember your promises, remember your kindness, don't destroy them. Moses contends, wrestles with God in prayer. Jesus teaches something similar uh, in in the parable of the persistent widow. It's 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 another fairly strange parable, so I'm not going to go and get into it in depth, but he's teaching his disciples to pray persistently. Keep praying, keep asking, keep at God to fulfill his promises. It's, it's one of those strange points where it's the junction of those ideas we talked about a few weeks ago between God's sovereignty and responsible human decisions. Why bother praying? Why do we need to wrestle with God if it's in his will and he's going to do it? And surely if we just ask once and that's enough, and if he says yes, yes, if he says no, no, to keep asking, isn't that presumptuous? And how do I know if I'm asking for the right thing or not? Whether I'm being ungodly in what I ask for? And all these questions that kind of, it's all intention in there. But don't miss the point. God invites us to partner with him in prayer, to wrestle with him. Do wrestle with God for the things that are on your heart, asking him to fulfill his promises, to bring about his kingdom in your life and in the lives of those around you. And yet, and here's lesson number four, don't wrestle with God. (laughs) Do wrestle with God in prayer, but don't wrestle with God. Jacob has his name changed, and the name is changed to Israel which sounds like he struggled with God. I don't think that's a good name. The origin of Israel, the nation begins here. And again, the seed is planted and the nation of Israel wrestles with God, contends with God, in the end disobeys. Israel is a nation full of wayward, disobedient, not listening, stiff-necked people who don't obey and aren't examples of faith. Right here begins the story that in the end, as it pans out through the Old Testament, we'll see, is a story of failure. God's people don't listen. God's people are such failures that in the end they require a saviour. You see, when it comes to your relationship with God, it must begin in humility. It must begin in necessity and it must begin in need. Accept the salvation that God offers. Don't wrestle against it. Submit. Submit yourself to him. Accept the lordship of Jesus. Accept his work in you. How will our lives change? As we leave whatever situation you're in right now, as you finish this service and turn it off, if you would only begin to see God's work in everything around you, that he will not be stopped, his purposes are sure and he will keep them, that he will do what is necessary in your life to teach you to hold on to him, that he invites you to partner with him in prayer, to wrestle with him, that he invites you to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ to live your life for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these chapters so full of your hand 
as you work in the life of your man Jacob to bring him into the land that you promised him. Father, thank you for those seeds that teach us such important truths about you and your ways and your world and about us and about your son Jesus. Teach us to see you at work, to know you at work, that we might be men and women of faith who have been taught by you to trust, to pray, to depend, to live out the lives of your people in this world. Amen. Walkie-dockle is...